The Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. Included in those efforts, of course, is their book publishing efforts, such as The Hill, A Memoir of War in Helmand Province by Aaron Kirk. The Hill is an account of the tragedy of war, the deeply personal experience of combat, and the raw, unfiltered brutality of lower enlisted Marine Corps life. This gripping book follows Aaron Kirk's odyssey from civilian to Marine and back again, focusing on his time as an infantry squad leader in Garmsir Helmand Province during the height of the Afghanistan troop surge. To find out more about the Hill, to purchase it, and to see all the lines of effort going on at Second Mission Foundation, visit them at secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. And I thank them for being a sponsor of this episode. As you guys all know, Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. A Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, informative content. So surf the pages of Havoc Journal, read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, God, what else? Culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. So check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com. Havoc Journal, all one word, dot com. My guest today was Scott Mann. And uh, I got to do a couple of caveats about Scott um, and about this interview. I did not intend to put this episode out on as a profile on Avic. It really was supposed to be a Savage Wonder episode because I um, saw Scott's play called Last Out on YouTube, and it's a fascinating piece of theater. It's um, a two-and-a-half-hour, 360-degree examination of the war in Afghanistan. Um, you know, it examines the warfighters' experience. It examines the families' experience. It also takes into account cultural issues between Americans and Afghans. Uh, it, you know, uh, brings up the issue of counterinsurgency versus counterterror. It, um, you know, there's stuff about chain of command. There's, uh, you know, it just, it's a full spectrum treatment of the war in Afghanistan. Um, so an incredibly fascinating piece of theater one that uh, is incredibly personal, incredibly emotional, yet also brings up uh, kind of more left brain issues as well, which is is you know rare and um, and incredibly difficult to do in any sort of artistic way, and that leads to why this interview is going out as a profile in Havoc as well, because to understand Scott's artistic journey, you really have to unpack his time as both a warfighter and his let's call it humanitarian career. 
Uh, Scott was uh, your know, career army officer. He retired as a lieutenant colonel. Most of his time was spent in special forces. And um, then almost a decade later, he ended up unintentionally, um, well, I should say intentionally, but um, you know, he did not set out to start a humanitarian effort, but uh, you know, he had the, in my view, the, the moral courage to not back down from, from the opportunity that was in front of him. And he founded Task Force Pineapple and was obviously heavily involved um, in getting Afghans out of Afghanistan, including especially, especially paying attention to our partner forces, the Afghan commandos and all that. So you have to really unpack all that stuff a lot to fully appreciate the artistic journey that he went on to exploit all those experiences into an artistic medium. So, uh, so at the end of the day, I, I was like, geez, I think this is a profile in havoc as much as it's a savage wonder episode. And, um, I should also mention that Scott's son is an infantry platoon leader now. So obviously with things popping off in Ukraine, literally the day before uh, we recorded this episode, you know, there's no way we couldn't talk about Ukraine and he obviously has skin in the game uh, emotionally as far as what's going to end up happening with us involvement there um, or lack of us involvement there as the case might be. So, um, so all, all in all, it was just an unavoidable uh, interview to, to put on uh, Profiles in Havoc. It just had to be put out. Um, I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. It, it. To me, it was a beyond fascinating episode. Um, we will have Scott back on the show, I'm positive, at some point uh, to talk further because I have pages of questions uh, I, I couldn't get to unless I really wanted to be a dick and, and take up his entire day. Um, but I think you guys will really enjoy this, and I, I can't wait for you guys to hear everything he has to say. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Scott Mann's Profile in Havoc. All right, I'm live with Scott Mann. What's up, Scott? Brother, how are you? Um, I'm good. Uh, I mean, we just saw each other. For those that aren't aware, we're recording this the day after the real proper invasion of Ukraine. So let me turn it back on you. How are you doing? Uh, you know, I, I'm trying to process all this, man. I it, it feels weird. Um, it kind of numb. I think is the only way I could describe it. Is I, it just feels I just feel kind of numb around uh, everything that's happened over the last 48, 72 hours. Um, I'm not really sure what to think of it. You obviously have a little bit more skin in the game than most because your son's in as an yeah. platoon leader. Now, yeah. is there so your emotions are probably going to be different uh, than mine in certain respects. Is there any sense of fomo of fear of missing out or anything like that is there any sense of god this is the first combat theater that you will have no firsthand experience in you know in 20 yeah. 30 years it's, it's like a whole new front and it's like we're getting yeah. veterans possibly from a new front that we've never you know we have no experience in it's just crazy yeah i mean there's so much uh like i said like there's so much to get your head around and your heart around i mean there is that i there is absolutely that and i'd be lying if i said it wasn't um, is, is, is literally like, we haven't even turned the page 
on the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan. And then we're like, you know, wholesale looking at what you and I grew up with as another cold war, man, or like, you know, a hot war, but with the, with the same, you know, that it's like putting the band back together. I don't know. It, it's really, really weird. And, and yeah, there is definitely some kind of, my wife said it last night. She's like, you know, you're going to be the one that has the hardest time with this. Cause you're going to have to watch this play out from this side of the pond. And it's just not something I'm used to doing. And um, sort of a perverse irony because your son was watching you deploy to a combat yeah. leader. And now you're going to have to sit and watch him potentially, you know, not definitely, yeah. but potentially deploy to a combat theater. Yeah. And I, I mean, I feel like I made the play actually helped me make my peace with that um, because I needed to make my peace with that. I needed to reconcile how I felt about all that. And, and uh, I'm sure we'll probably cut into that, but the, mm -hmm. I, look, here's what I would say. I loved your comment last night about punditry. There is so much punditry out there right now on all of this, like why we lost the war in Afghanistan and why it didn't matter. And I'm like, man, you know, I'm not so sure we need that shit right now, but OK. Um, but uh, the what I feel is that I want these guys and girls to know, regardless of what our feelings are, what you and I feel that we have their back and that, that we 100 percent support them and that I believe they are magnificent and and you know when we toured the play man everywhere we went you know who had our back the whole time was the vietnam veterans mm -hmm. the guys who actually probably should have been the most bitter and the most jaded i feel like were the biggest supporters of the post 9-11 warriors and i really hope that we do the same for this generation going forward like we need to be that for them no matter what what our politics are uh, yeah i'm glad you said that i mean that was definitely um what Scott's referring to, because I don't know if I'm going to cover it when I record the intro after this, but in case I forget to, um, Scott was kind enough to join us for our Right Loud event uh, that I scrambled to put together uh, <laughs> yesterday uh, about Ukraine. And uh, one of, yeah, one of the, my big concerns uh, that I saw right off the bat when all this was going on is how solipsistic everyone seemed to be on social media, that it was all about U.S. domestic politics is all about great. My my team jersey is now triumphing over your team jersey and all this. And yeah. there's a time for postmortems. There's a time for pointing fingers. Gotcha. Fair enough. Um, but it's important to remember what real evil looks like sometimes, and that at yeah. the end of the day, you know, it is one team, and um, and it's not about us. Yeah, the enemy has a vote, and bad things are happening regardless of uh, you know who's president and. Uh, of what our domestic pol political concerns are. And uh, so, yeah, that's why I agree. Yeah, punditry is kind of a little premature, I think, in a lot of cases. And maybe artistry has a little bit more to say because we kind of capture things holistically, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And, you know, we need to deal with those emotional issues as veterans and family members and process that in order to I think be there for whoever we need to be there for. Cause I know I'm sure the Vietnam veterans had to do something similar. Like, you know, think about the way those guys were treated and what they went through. And then yeah. all of a sudden, man, you know, like there's, you know, the, 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 the nine 11 attacks and there's, there's, there's yellow ribbons on trees and Budweiser commercials and country songs. And it's like, man, what the, you know, how, how how did we go from what we how we, we were being spit on to to this and yet they still found a way 
to dig deep and say, you know what, um, that will not happen to this group of veterans that come home. And, and man, they, they really did. And I, I hope that we can do this. I hope that we can be counted the same way. I hope that we can, because I'm already seeing a lot of this, like you nailed it, man, like this, this bipart or this partisan, you know, grandstanding when we have troops deployed on the edge of combat, like, I don't know if the world has changed that much, but I was brought up. You don't do that. And admittedly, I mean, I, I get how technology is different. And now, you know, that yeah. old, that old yeah. thing about, you know, never criticize your country outside the borders yeah. um, and all that. And now there are no borders. So it, it, I get how it gets confusing for people. And, you know, and as I say, like, I'm not above, you know, placing blame and speaking privately about my thoughts and feelings about this right. policy or that policy that said, I think, yeah, a little bit of humility, a little bit of introspection and a little bit of um, understanding the time and place and the proportion of outrage. Like, what do we where do we allocate our outrage? And for well, me yeah. right now, you know, a lot of the allocation needs to be on the one motherfucker that started all this, which is Vladimir Putin. Oh, and, right. You know, we can blame the chamberlains of the world, but ultimately the fault is going to fall, fall with Hitler. You know, that's really it's good. Like, you know, so I, I think really that's good. kind of where I'm at uh, anyway. Really good. Yeah, I, I I can't I can't disagree with any of that, man. I think that's really well framed. And, you know, I, I like you, I've been I've been very vocal about Afghanistan and, and accountability. And, and there, you know, there's I'm going to be more vocal as we go into the summer and the book comes out like I, I there's no way that you can't right. do that. Um, and we need to be. Uh, however, I, I just I, I also believe that as we roll into this thing and we don't really know what's going on, you you know, our leadership needs to step up and do their job. But but I think we also need as as citizens, we need to be at each other's shoulder and and, you know, support our our troops as they go forward and their families and make sure they're taken care of. And yeah, I, I don't know, man, I, I hope that we can not allow polarized politics to help Putin out. That's a very more than fair point emotionally and i I don't want to you know go too far down the ukraine rabbit hole but i kind of feel like in many ways we have to just even back thread to your life and to the work you've been doing how what was your reaction to seeing ballistic missiles and peer on peer force in a way that we haven't seen you know really in my lifetime i mean i do i i don't you know, I mean, I, I guess you'd have to go back to Korea to, at least to find this kind of force being used where we're so close to it. Obviously, it's been used, but not with us being on the brink of entering that fray. How'd that strike you? Because I know what my reaction was, and I mentioned how that rubbed you. Yeah, it, it was it was actually very stark. You know, um, it was it was almost like. Um, looking at something for the first time, you know, and. And just feeling um, somewhat vulnerable, you know, and, and again, it's informed for me, it's informed by the fact that, you know, my kid serves and, and uh, you know, so there's that parental thing that comes in there. And I try to, I try to separate that, but, you know, I just think about this 20 year war that we fought in Afghanistan and, 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 and this focus on the asymmetric threat and all these other things. And now you're, you know, you're looking eye to eyeball to eyeball with this near peer reality. And, um, 
you know, it is, uh, it's daunting, man. I, and, and honestly, you know, the other thing too, Chris, if I'm being super honest here is because the 20 year war was our war, it was my war. You know, I threw myself into that because I felt like as a Green Beret, my obligation is to be the best I can at the local realities on the ground. So I need to be able to speak to tribal dynamics. I need to be able to speak to, um, you know, uh, irregular warfare. I need to be able to speak to all of those things that are frankly necessary to have any chance of success in Afghanistan, because that was where I was focused. And you know, to do that right, I don't think you can kind of do that and be a near peer expert, like which was what I'm seeing a lot of people yeah, try to yeah. do now. They're like, because like people have asked me to go on the news and talk about Ukraine. I'm like, no, because I don't think I'm qualified. I don't even think I'm close to qualified because my focus has been on asymmetric, irregular warfare, particularly <clears throat> that of Southwest Asia, particularly that of a status society informed by Pashtun tribal dynamics. Like, that's my world. So that's maybe that's the other reason, man, I'm trying to get my head around this is because like, I don't feel to weigh in on it or even know how to think about it. I, and I think a lot of people don't, are, don't appreciate what a radical difference this war seems to be, you know, yeah. uh, uh, encompassing and and just how stark this difference is. I mean, this is like old timey war. This is like what you saw, right. you know, growing up. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. When you went through um, Pineland University, what, what were so that was the early '90s, right? What were your scenarios then? Was it were you guys? I mean, obviously, you're still doing the jungle diplomacy thing, but were you focused on uh, near peer realities, or you know, in the wake of the Cold War? What was the focus back then when you first got in? Yeah, I think it was certainly, an, uh, you know, the, the scenario of, of those role playing exercises for those who are not super familiar with the special forces, you know, culminating exercise of Robin Sage, where you you you, you basically do a mock up guerrilla warfare. Uh, it was it was informed with the old remember the old Atlantica scenario. Maybe you, I don't know if you remember it, but like it, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was, and it was definitely kind of this near peer thing, but here's a key point I want to make that I, that I, it's kind of a caveat to what I just said about, you know, not necessarily understanding the game. I do understand the game of irregular warfare. And, and honestly, I think unless, unless our plan is to go toe-to-toe with Russia and China. And I don't think it is. And I don't think that would be the case under any clear-thinking administration. Like, if our plan is we are going to go toe-to-toe total war with China and Russia, that's going to be like our doctrine. I'm not sure that's right. I'm, I'm pretty sure that the preponderance of work against these threats in the coming years will be irregular warfare by, with, and through surrogate forces that are both formal, like, you know, the Afghan commandos, and informal, like Afghan villagers through village stability operations, right? And if you look at Ukraine right now, I think there's a very strong bet that what's going to happen is we are going to attempt to work by, with, and through Ukrainian partners for the long game. Now, if that's true, you have to ask yourself what just happened in Afghanistan with the wholesale abandonment of Afghan partners 
how and the fact that we did not inform NATO overall on our timeline for departure, how does that play into this future application of warfare? Like that, I think, is a very fair question. And I think one we had better get our head around because we don't have a good track record of working with partners. And I think working with partners will be the premier way in which we deal with Russia and China. I remember a couple of years ago um, in professional military education schools, there was that big gear shift to start to talk about near peer conflict as opposed to counterterrorism or coin or any other um, doctrine that we'd kind of been embracing over the last 20 years. And do you agree with me that it's sort of perversely ironic that now the biggest proving ground for the counterterror and coin philosophies, uh, you know, in Afghanistan, is now the home of a geopolitical enemy, aka China, where we might see a manifestation of or or an extension of near peer force um, that. You know, whether it's because of their mining operations, whether it's cementing up the, uh, you know, one belt, one road initiative, um, or even as a launching point, because now they're at that crossroads of the world. And that it's kind of funny that we were thinking we had to gear shift away from coin and CT only to go, well, the near peer threat is going to be in the same theater. You know, thank you. Thank you. Yes. No, I uh, it, it is beyond ironic. And I think approaching ill informed. To, you know, and again, I, I look at the like the punditry that is out there right now talking about how this was such a waste. And, you know, but but if you look at the great game in Southwest Asia, particularly Afghanistan and that region. And the fact that it has been for eons, the the you know, the place where peers compete and the fact that we were so overtly adamant about getting out of Afghanistan so that we could get into the near peer threat or the near peer game, right? But yet the, the, the Chinese embassy is still open. The Russian embassy is still open. I mean, in the interviews for the book, I interviewed a, um, a Finnish diplomat who personally witnessed two large convoys of Russian military vehicles coming off of their big transport jets out of Hkaya down into Kabul city, you know, during the evacuation. And, you know, I, I don't think it's a stretch to think that, like, think about, for example, the wholesale abandonment of the Afghan commandos, one of the finest trained surrogate forces in the world. I mean, we've been training these cats since like 08, 09. For the latter part of the war, they were carrying the brunt. I mean, they fought until the last round. We, we left over 20,000 of them in country with sitting on buses with engines running, right? And we just flew away. Now, what, what do you think after one winter in, in Kabul and watching their children starve, what do you think they're going to do for a living come the spring thaw? Maybe not all of them, you know, and how much do they know about us and our tactics and our techniques and our procedures? Like, to me, the, 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 what the Chinese and the Russians could get out of them uh, is, is really, really scary stuff. And no one's talking about this. It, 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 and it is a major factor in the near peer reality. The near peer fight was in the country we just left. I'm really glad that you said that because that's been a pet peeve. And obviously, um, 
I think anyone involved in the effort to get Afghans out of the country is aware of this, but almost no one else talks about it, which is, you know, we hear a lot about the SIVs, as we should. We hear yep. a lot about American citizens left in Afghanistan, which we should. We hear a lot, um, a little bit less, but there is talk about, you know, your P1s and P2s. There is very little chatter about our actual partner forces that didn't apply for SIVs because they weren't planning on leaving and that now retroactively we're trying to get P1 designations for and try to say, hey, look, these guys are being targeted. And the fact that they have been abandoned the way they are and that there seems to be a portion of the veteran community that is like, well, hey, that's on them. We don't, you know, we're not here to wholesale rescue our partner forces. Um, I think that is a huge story. I think it's a huge blind spot. And I think you've just hit the nail on the head with potential second and third order effects that I hope don't come true, but it's entirely feasible and understandable how they could. And especially when we look at Ukraine, as you said, all the ways that even just the optics of it um, can reverberate to uh, against our best interests, where our, our future partner forces now look and we don't have the bona fides we used to have with them because of specifically our work with the Afghan commandos and the fact that so many were left behind. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things that have to be considered here, man, and, and that I don't think is getting talked about. You know, um, the, the first one is like, look at our track record. Just back it up to Vietnam. Like I interviewed, we interviewed a guy named George. who's a fifth group veteran. Uh, he's in his 80s, fought in Vietnam. He's still pulling Montagnards out lives in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, right? And, you know, you think about the way that we abandoned the Montagnards, the Nungs. Um, you think about the way that we treated the Kurds, even most recently yes. under, the Trump, under the Trump administration, where their sacred caliphate was reduced to almost zero that we were touting. You know who did the JSOC efforts and, and precision fires and all that and SF? But you cannot deny the, the role the Kurds played in that. But look at how we treated them. Like, look at how we treated them on the back end of that. Look at the abandonment of the Iraqi military with the emergence of ISIS uh, out of Syria. Look at now the abandonment of the Afghan commandos, the Afghan special forces. It, you know, we have such a poor track record of working by, with, and through. But here's my beef. And my Christmas card reception list keeps going down from Fort Bragg. Uh, and it will go much further down with this statement right here. Um, I am really disappointed in our special operations leadership as I look at the Afghan situation, but most disappointed in our special forces senior leadership. Um, we are supposed to be the stewards of by, with, and through. When 9-11 happened, you know, we had an 06 commander in Mulholland and fifth group that basically said, put the whole plan on me, I got it. And every SF dude in the world was trying to get in on that. You know, you fast forward 20 years, you have an entire partner force that we've built, an intelligence network that we've built, that was the result of the 9-11 commission saying, this is why we got hit in the first place. And Green Berets, who are the proponent for surrogate warfare, right? We did, we, we did, we said nothing at a senior level when it was time to withdraw. Nobody stood on anybody's desk. From what I can tell, no one resigned or even threatened to resign or even was just slightly obnoxious to policymakers and senior leaders about the recovery of the partner force. And here's the last thing I'll say on this, Chris. 
All of this happened while the agency in June recognized what was happening and senior leadership from the agency went over to Afghanistan and started SIV process for all of their paramilitary forces. And they got them all out. Those guys were sitting on the wall of H. Kaya, you know, and basically the deal was made that they would provide security for the, you know, for the NEO, and then them and their families would get on planes and leave. 20 plus thousand CIA paramilitaries all got out while our commandos and Afghan special forces sat on buses. And I'm not against what the age, I think it's great. Right. But how in God's name could the special forces community who has made its bones on by, with, and through allow an entire partner force to be left behind like that? It is, it is the, it is why so many of our veterans are in severe pain right now. It is why they, in myself included, the guys who I used to revere as my mentors are barely peers to me right now and how I view them. Is this the collateral damage of war that war um, with many people, it, it, it is such an unpleasant experience that people become sick of it. And as a result, almost knee jerk away from anything that would provoke, that would provoke or prolong conflict, even when the conflict might be necessary. I don't know, probably, but I think if I were to give a single word as to why this abandonment happened at the senior levels, I would have to say it's not war, it's careerism. And I'll stand by that till the day I die. I'm going to immediately, I think that's just the best segue I can think of to ask you about something directly from your play, because speaking of inappropriate, inadequate leadership in the play in last out, one of the characters that to me stood out and is probably the most, one of the most indelible from that play was um, Colonel Smith, who uh, I'm assuming is either a amalgamation of several people you knew, or maybe a pseudonym for one specific commander you knew. Can you talk a little bit about what he is based on, what that character is based on, and how much of your of Danny Patton's interactions with that are based on a true story? Yeah, um, great question. Colonel Smith, you know, is obviously you know an antagonist, an antagonist in in the in the play, and you know, a nemesis of Danny, uh, who is a team sergeant. But there's a couple of things about Smith that I think uh, are worth knowing. You know, first of all, when I crafted him as a character, you know, it was on the heels of uh, before we abandoned and left Afghanistan the way we did. We we first abandoned the rural Afghan villagers who we had been working with uh, through the village stability program from about 2010 to about 2013, 14. And there was a directive from the top down to pull our Green Berets out of the villages and maintain this Afghan local police type militia, but not be present in the villages with the communities living by, with, and through them the way we had started in 2010. And, you know, leaving that kind of magnificent seven approach 
really set the villagers up for massive retribution. And we've been saying that we had been saying that from the very beginning. It's like, look, if you're going to start this, you're going to move into these communities. You can't move out. Like you've got to stay, you know, this is remote area, foreign internal defense, old school, uh, similar to what was done with the uh, CIDG program in Vietnam. Like you, 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 you start this, you've got to stay with it. It's a long game. And the assurances were that we would. Well, no. I mean, at the first sign of, con- you know, when Karzai and a few others didn't like what was happening, they they uh, they they talked to the senior leaders who pulled us out of the villages and which caused wholesale retribution against a lot of Afghans. My phone rang pretty hard with, you know, calls in the middle of the night of Afghans being jerked out of their homes, as did other people's. Um, and you so capture in the play, I should say, yeah, capture effectively. And I think it's an important message that is goes past the emotional into just showing geopolitically and strategically what a failure that was. I just want to emphasize that. I appreciate that. And what really kind of struck me, we, we watched the film uh, down in Arkansas with the Arkansas National Guard just recently. And what struck me was if you don't know any better when you're watching it, you think that we're talking about the collapse of Afghanistan. Right. Um, because it, it is a microcosm. It was the, to me, it was the first shot across the bow of what was coming. You know, um, and so I, I, Smith is like Danny Patton. He is an amalgamation of multiple characters, uh, several of whom were my bosses. And there are lines that Smith says that were actually uttered some famously uh, by commanders who, to me, should have been fired. They they had no business going for multiple tours, but they did. Um, And but here's another thing I'll say about Smith, too. Smith's also a version of me. You know, he also represents, you know, while I hope that Danny represents some version of me that learned over time something I should have known from the beginning, which was um, the the value of working with locals and, and really investing in that and, and putting that at the forefront. You know, my, my ranger buddy Cliff was killed in the Pentagon, just like Kenny was. And it took me to a place that it, I kind of forgot what um, SF was really all about. And I really bought into, you know, the scalps on the barn approach, the attrition approach, and, you know, got pretty good at it. And and it, it wasn't until I and realized that I'd really lost my way as, as an individual in that war. And, you know, Smith there's a, you know, Smith lost his brother in the Pentagon or in the yeah, two towers. Right. And I, I wanted to put that in there because I felt like, you know, every antagonist, there is a level of humanity to them. And there's he's, a three, real, he's a three dimensional person. I mean, he it didn't come out of nowhere. That's right. Yeah. So that, you know, I just think that's important for me to say, because I don't want to give this perception that like, you know, my, my, my look on the war was this and everybody else, had, but you know, because I've made a ton of mistakes in that war. I made a ton of mistakes. I learned, a lot. And, and I, and, and I, I look back on it and I'll never get over some of the mistakes that I made. And I believe some of those mistakes are embodied in Smith character. I guess, let me stay with the mistakes Uh, in the play. Danny uh, has a pretty important pivotal scene with a young Smith where they call in Cass, a close air support on a village on a potential on a theoretical Taliban um, objective, which Danny and and it would seem any clear thinking person would see is not Taliban. It's women and children, and right. ends up with twenty three dead. I believe was the number. 
Yeah. Is that based on uh, your personal experience um, or was that something, a device that you saw could effectively communicate the dangers of that attrition mentality? Well, what it was based on were a couple of things. One, if I were to say from a personal experience is that in the early days of the war, you know, we would pivot on uh, target sets with minimal intelligence. Yeah. And, you know, we would bring Scunion uh, in a way that would, you know, either clear a path or, you know, justify, you know, taking a target out. And, and, the, and the parameters for PID were not, the positive identification were not that stringent. You know, and so it was really left to the devices of the tactical commander to to ascertain, you know, whether whether to to call that strike or not. Or, and you know, I was part of that. You know, I was part of that, and I and I got and I got that wrong at times. At times, I got it right, and and you know, but there were there were times when, you know, I employed operational fires in a way that, looking back on it, I wouldn't do it that way now. You know, but it, when you're in it. Um, and I just, there, you know, there's a certain humanity to warfare and there's a certain inhumanity to warfare. And I wanted to try to like bring that out and just be as honest about it as I could in one moment. Um, but then there's also there, it's also based on several other drops that happened that were just egregious and, you know, but I, I wanted it to be, I just wanted the, cause remember I, one of the main reasons I wrote this play, Chris, was I wanted this. I wanted Americans and citizens in general to feel the impact of modern war at every angle possible. And I feel like bringing those kinds of moments out is necessary for us to start to tackle as a society, because like that's where it's going. It doesn't matter what the theater is like that kind of thing is going to continue. Let me, uh, let me maybe take a second to compliment you on the play itself, and, and I'll do that by way of giving everybody an overview of it. What, what really stood out to me at the end of the day, after I kind of stopped sobbing a little bit, to be perfectly honest, um, was the holistic treatment that you give that particular theater, that it's not simply one person or even one character's emotional journey. It's a 360-degree look at political implications, strategic implications, geopolitical implications, human implications, the emotional journey, the family and interpersonal uh, dynamic. It, there's really no aspect that I could see of that theater that you did not touch on. That's an incredibly tall order to accomplish. And I thought it was accomplished three-dimensionally. It wasn't simplistic. You didn't give any easy answers. It's a tough journey to go on. But holy shit, is that worth it for somebody that really wants to understand specific the specifics about that theater or greater generalities about war? Um, can you talk about the genesis of why you wanted to write the play and why you wanted to factor so much into the scope of it? Yeah, uh, thank you for those kind of words, man. Um, it means a lot, especially coming from you. Um, the the decision to write the play was iterative. You know, I had a really bad transition. I almost took my own life 18 months after um, I came out of the service um, for a whole host of reasons. I'd lost my purpose. I had just disconnected. I didn't like the way things were going in Afghanistan. I didn't like the way Jim Gant had been treated. Um, and so I, even though I was selected for a command, I, 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 I retired um, and turned it what down. What year was this? 
2013. Okay. Sorry. Um, yeah. No, no, it's fine. And, and then just went into kind of a spiral, man. I, and, and um, it ended up at some point in a closet holding a 45 and um, didn't end up doing that obviously, but came out of a, it, it. I was just in a place where I just felt like I was in between. I was just stuck uh, in between the war and being home. And I wasn't in either. Um, and I, I kind of was searching for something. I ended up finding a mentor named Bo Eason, who's a, you know, he's a former NFL football player. He's a writer and actor. We became really good friends and, and he showed me the power of storytelling and speaking. And so I was already talking about the war, writing about the war, but nothing really seemed to land. And when my son Cody told me he wanted to go in, I thought, man, most of the country doesn't even know like what it means to go to combat or to tell your you know wife goodbye or hold your best friend and and I, I wanted to do something that got beyond the books and the movies and 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 you know and Bo kept saying dude you got to do a play I did a play about football it changed everything and you it'll heal you and finally I guess I I, I was taking some acting classes in Sarasota and they they had a little five minute uh, one person show event and I volunteered I wrote a a little piece about the silly band that my son Braden gave me when I was on a deployment and I, and I did it and it really connected with the audience. And I guess it gave me permission, Chris, in some way to start this journey of, you know, and my overall goal though was to inform people about the cost of war and validate it with those who fought it. And that was it. Um, and it was a five-year journey. And, and, and so the genesis of it, the only other thing I'll say is when we did the premiere in 2018, you know, I'd never acted in my life. I'd been going to New York, studying under Larry Moss and Carl Bury for a year, um, really throwing myself into it the way I think any SF guy would who's trying to learn a new skill. Um, and and I was really, really nervous about it. We had a, a wonderful cast of veterans and military family members. But when we did the premiere, everyone in that we did a talk back. And I think that's where the real power of it came was in the talk back. When, when we, the audience got their breath and we, we started to talk about this thing, that's when it came out that we should tour. Um, and then we took this thing to 16 cities uh, in the next year, 2019. And, and it was on the road that the true iterations of the story came out. How did you meet Bowie what was it, what were you doing? What was your day job that you were even like had that capability to start to pull yourself out of that hole? So I was doing contract work for select groups down here in Tampa, and uh, I hated it with a passion. And I felt like I needed to be on the stage in some capacity. I didn't know what it was. I just felt like telling the story. Every time I kind of did something like that, I, I felt like it was it felt right. And so I had gone to all these different workshops and stuff. And I went to this one workshop called uh, World's Greatest Speaker. And it was out in California. And I'm sitting there with all these millennials and they're clapping, you know, and all these different speakers are coming out. And I just, I, I hated it. I didn't want to be there. But then they announced that this guy, Bo Eason, was coming out. And I looked at his bio and here's like a dude that was voted the dirtiest player in the NFL. You know, he's a free safety um, from my generation of football players, his brother was Tony Eason and I'm leaving, but I'm going to watch this guy before I go. And he comes out, man. And from the moment he walked on the stage, I mean, I literally was in a, uh, in a trance like state, man. And I don't think it, like in a fanboy kind of way. I mean, like I was just so enamored with the way the dude moved, he moved like an operator. He, he owned the room. His his voice was so clear and like he just held the room 
And he was talking about how the physicality of storytelling can, you know, bridge any gap. And I, and then he said one line that got me, man. And it was this, he said he was in his, in a game and he blew his knee out for the seventh time. And he was in the bottom of this pile and they were carrying him off the field and he knew that was it. And he was looking off to the side and he wasn't even thinking about the end of his career. He said to himself, I'm going to go to prison. And he said to himself, if I don't find a way to take this TNT inside of me and put it to work for good, I'm going to go to prison. And as soon as he said that, like, I literally felt like he had pierced my soul because that's exactly how I felt. And, um, I knew right then I was going to work with him and, and, and whatever that was. And that's exactly what happened. Where had this theater bug come from? Why were you seeking out these classes? I, I mean, a lot of people are dissatisfied with contracting work. Not a lot of people look for salvation in the theater as a, as a recourse when they're unhappy with that. What was your path? I would go a level below it and say storytelling. Okay. Because, because I, I come from Appalachia and I, I have always had an affinity for storytelling. I, I leveraged storytelling almost uh, subconsciously in special forces. It, it, I think it is what helped me work in tribal areas where others didn't. Um, you know, I, I knew, I, I knew how to tell stories instinctively, but what Bo woke me up to was this form of conscious storytelling with the body. And it, as I and it really wasn't theater at that moment. It was the stage and and taking the stories. I call it the generosity of scars, but repurposing my struggles and other struggles into the service of other people through narrative. Um, I fell in love with that, and and I and, it, and I found that it it when I did it, it 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 there was a healing catharsis to it, you know. And 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 but Bo is the one I think who really turned me on over time to the possibility of taking that love of storytelling and transforming it into an actual piece of art about the war, because I felt like that had not been done from the stage. And the other thing I'll say is I saw this thing on tracers, uh, you know, the Vietnam or the rendition of the Vietnam War by the Vietnam vets that came out in the 80s. I'd read Gary Sinise's book and how he helped bring that to the fore. And I thought, we need a post 9-11 tracers. And that's what I wanted to do. Culturally, what was it like for you, though, to be going to these workshops, the acting <laughs> workshops in Sarasota, going out to California, going to these things? I mean, the, the fact that that didn't turn you off from storytelling or taking a story onto the stage in any form is kind of miraculous in and of itself. What was it before you even met Bo Eason that even kept you in the game long enough to meet Bo Eason? Why weren't you turned off uh, ahead of time? I just felt like there was a truth to storytelling, even though some of the people in it were not very nice people. They, they, they seem to kind of have this view of the only storytellers can be this can only be theater can only be this. And I didn't feel right about that. I, I, I'd read Arthur Miller and some of these other, you know, uh, the things they carried. And I thought, you know, we can tell our own story. There's no reason that we can't tell our own story. There's no, no one has the market cornered on that. And I had voiced that to Bo that, I, it seemed that there was kind of a one-sided view 
of theater and storytelling and that anything around the, an honest discussion on war was kind of like off limits that it needed to be. And he was like, no, I don't think that's true. He said, I think you're just not working with the right people. And so, you know, he got me connected to a couple of people in New York who, you know, had very different political opinions than mine, but they had a real respect for not just the military, but the fact that this 50 year old dude is going to try to learn how to act and tell this story. There was something I think that was so radical about that, that they wanted to be a part of it to see if it could actually be done. Um, and I know Larry Moss, you know, um, that dude sure as hell didn't have to work with me, like, and probably shouldn't have. Um, and for those both called in a favor. Yeah. For those that don't know, I mean, Larry Moss is one of the preeminent acting coaches. He works with just so many big A-list stars. Um, funny story, true story. I'll just name drop this. He and my mom were in the same acting class years and years and years ago. Um, and, uh, I, I can't remember whose acting class it was. I want to say it was Win Hanman's, but I could be wrong about that, Wow! but it was a very wow. small select acting class. Uh, when my mom was on Broadway and Larry was working <laughs> and I think, I think, uh, uh, Gwen Verdun, Bob Fossey's wife was in that class. Wow. And, um, when she found out years later, when I was starting to try to be an actor, uh, and Larry Moss got thanked in an Oscar speech and she said, Larry Moss, she's like, that guy, she's like, he was the small guy that was in the, and he had props and he did a thing like that. It was so funny. Anyway, uh, that just brings that up for me and uh, not trying to name wow. drop or, or throw a spotlight on, but it is funny how successful and, and, uh, and from all accounts, just how amazing he has been to work with. What was that experience like for you uh, working with him? It was really humbling. He, um, he really was, you know, there was so much talent in that room, man. I mean, in these little workshops, that was the other thing that was really hard for me is these folks were so much younger than me yeah. and just so good. I mean, just so good. And I, and I would just sit there, man. I'd be like, what in the hell am I doing here? You know, this is, and I would just get really upset to be here. And, um, and I, you know, the level of emotional access that Larry Moss and frankly, the play required terrified me more than just about anything I'd ever done in my life, including some aspects of combat. I mean, they're just the, the level of emotional access that I knew I was going to have to do to truly honor the script. And at one point, Larry said to me uh, in front of everybody, he said, Scott, you've written something beautiful. I'm not sure you can perform it. Mm. And that wrecked me, you know, just yeah. wrecked me uh, because I felt like I had to perform it. Like I had to do that. And uh, it really, but it really woke me up, man. And, and it really, it kind of got me out of my head. And what he was saying was, you're going to, you know, this thing requires a level of emotional access and truth. And if you don't do it, somebody needs to, you know, and he was really fighting as Larry Moss does, or as a good director would does, he was fighting for the story. And he wasn't going to let me get in the way of it just because I wanted to perform it. And if you think about it, what a great person to do that. I mean, holy cow, because he understood what the potential was of the story to heal and inform at that moment better than I did. And, and I'm so grateful to him and the other people that like came into my life and did that because I was in so many ways. I think just really naive 
and um, and blinded by what I needed to do because yeah, I didn't know. And they did know, and they never once failed me, like not once. And I'm just, sometimes I just sit back on it, man. And I'm just so grateful that people would take that kind of time and effort to help unearth a story that is so painful and so beautiful. And uh, yeah, I don't know, man, I know I'm babbling, but like that he's, they're really good people. And I'm so grateful to him. I'm just trying to, to picture it um, and put myself in your shoes. It, was there any struggle on your part? How do I, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this without needlessly offending somebody. But was there, was there any part, any part of you that was like, this is hard for me to open up to because I don't have a level of trust with all of you. Your yes. all lives experience are just too different. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. No, man, you're, you're hit. You're asking. Yes. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, there was judgment that was leveled, you know, the deal. I mean, you can tell humans are barometers for this kind of thing, particularly X cream berets. And, and, you know, I could tell the moment, cause I would perform my, my rehearsals in my uniform and, you know, there were, you could feel these judgments on you, you know, these biases from the moment and, and not just uh, like what you were wearing, but Almost like I felt people could see through me and they're like, he's not trained. This guy's like, he's a, he's a poser. What's he even doing here? You know? And, uh, and a lot of that was my own resistance as Stephen Pressfield says, like a lot of it was just my own head chatter, but some of it wasn't, I mean, some of it was like, you could just, you could, you know, and I even got word that some people were, you know, that, but at the end of the day, what, what I told myself was like, I'm going to tell this story. And then if they choose not to like want to have any fine, like whatever, but they're going to hear this story. And I will tell you, man, after, after the first monologue that I did at a Larry Moss workshop, I knew right then that it didn't matter what anybody's politics were, that they were going for the ride. You know, um, I could put my foot on their chest cavity and they were going to go with Danny on this mission one way or the other. And there was no, and there was nothing they could do about it if they sat in that room. And, and, and that became a really cool thing for me to know. And then it became like, it would be kind of fun to go in these rooms and look at the room before and then look at the room after. And yeah. And it actually helped me. What was everybody else working on in the room? Were they working on one-person shows? Were they just working on acting scenes? What 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 were you? What environment did you find yourself in creatively? Uh, it depended on what what I was doing workshop wise. Um, okay. Most people were um, working on you know um, uh, monologues for okay. uh, for the, just for their craft. Um, and, and then they would, um, you know, they would get up and, and, or, or not just monologue. Some people were doing dialogue with, with a scene partner and that's, you know, that was pretty, pretty common and, and, you know, but they were working on their craft in general. They'd been assigned the, the dialogue. Some people were working on, I think I was one of the few that at that time that was kind of working on a project, but, okay. but I have to say, man, the, the outpouring of support from that community overall was the trust thing I have I believe was a lot of my doing that was my doing. Like that was me assigning some kind of meaning to what I perceived 
and what my biases were because of what I, how I'd grown up in special forces. But the reality was, man, like when it was, I mean, I look back on it now, I, I've been a hell of a lot more supported from that community than I have been from the SF community. Why is that? I don't, it's not that the SF community has been unsupportive. It's just that the, the community, the theater community has just been overwhelmingly supportive. Um, and the SF community, like I performed it at Bragg and, and they, it was really cool and great. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of it too is we're still so close to it with the SF community right now. I mean, it's white hot. You know, they didn't do tracers until 1980, I think. Right, right. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and there, there was time for that emotion to metabolize to some degree. But, you know, we're just now like coming out of this 20 year war. So, but I have to believe that like five years, 10 years, 50, you know, what is it that Tim O'Brien says at the end of the things they carried? He said, stories are for those late hours in the night when you can't remember how you got from where you were to where you are now for when memory is erased and there's nothing left to remember except the story, you know? And and I, my hope is that like this play will be that for all of those who were affected in some way, you know, by this forever war. You know, one of the things uh, that I didn't mention before about your play that is worth saying, and that I think is really interesting that it was received warmly and that you're able to workshop it is that I I think the theater community in my experience, and and this is anecdotal, but is uh, well-prepared for an anti-war story. They're not necessarily as well-prepared for a nuanced 360 degree treatment that says some bad things happened, some good things happened, some necessary things happened, and maybe it wasn't about good or bad. That's an adult conversation that, in my opinion, a lot of people um, just don't have the experience to have. And the fact yeah. that you're able to capture that in the play and the fact that that was able, that you were able to build that level of trust and have, for lack of a better phrase, a safe space to workshop that and develop that is uh, a real credit to you, I think, and to that, you know, where you found yourself and what you're able to do in that community. Because uh, I don't think that's necessarily, that's not an easy thing. No, you know? no. And, and there are, you know, just like any other arena, there are like, you know, sizable preconceived notions and biases. And and like, I'll give you an example, Chris, is, you know, one of the scenes in the play, you know, Danny has a nightmare and it's a bad one. And he's reliving the loss of his friend who he blames himself for, you know, and then his wife wakes him up and they have to have a conversation about his mental health, <laughs> you know, and, um, Man, that's a hard conversation, you know, and, and, and I had that conversation and my wife did pick me up off the floor and I know a lot of friends who are in that place. And I know a lot of civilians who have no fucking clue what that means. And I don't blame them. I don't fault them, but like, you know, we are, if we're going to, I think leverage and mobilize our military population and our military families for the great resources and assets that they are going forward in this world. We've got to know the miles they've run. We've got to emotionally feel, you know, some of the obstacles that they face every day. And we can't, we can't separate ourselves from that. Politicians need to understand 
what a nightmare looks like to a man who has deployed 13 times, Yeah, you know, before they deploy him on the 14th, like it's a Fortnite game. And, uh, and, and, and I felt that the only way that that could truly be represented was if the people who had lived it had the opportunity to perform it. And, and not like an after school special, like we would have to train, we would have to, we would have to be judged as, as any other piece of art would be judged, but that there was just something about at least the first run of this thing, that there's a certain depth to that nightmare. And there's a certain weight to that discussion with Danny and Lynn that cannot be method. Like it's gotta be a lived experience or it should at least be shown that way once. And, um, that was yeah, just how I felt. And, and I'm glad that we were able to do that. And I guess history will judge whether or not that was right or, you know, but I, I don't regret any of it. I'm glad that we, and I'll tell you one other thing real quick was uh, on doing that, you know, we would have our own trauma and getting stuck. And, you know, there were several times and we started traveling with counselors who could help us. They would use these non-invasive, non-chemical protocols to just help resolve a lot of these trauma loops. And uh, what happened was on the road, they traveled with us and they started spotting them and people in the audience and they started doing treatments on the road. And we did like 200 plus trauma interventions on the road. And I never in my wildest dreams thought that would be like one of the things that we did on tour, but we did. And, uh, you know, wow. I mean, like, like, I don't think that would have happened if we had not put veterans in the cast. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask, where did you find uh, Brian Bachman and Len Moss, uh, Len Bruce, sorry. So Brian and I have known each other. He's in Orlando and he's brilliant. He plays 11 characters in that, in that play. And um, we, we had known each other. Um, he was in my, one of my leadership masterminds on my rooftop side. And uh, he, I remember when he started getting into acting, you know, uh, quite a few years ago. And um, I, so when I wrote the play, I, I called Brian and I was like, Hey man, like I, I knew he would appreciate it. And I said, I want to do a reading of this. Would you, would you be willing to, and he said, well, send me the script. And when, when he read the script, he's like, Oh yeah, I'm in whatever, whatever you're doing, I'm in. And then Lenny, I actually, um, I put out on a Facebook, I think in the SF brothers is like, uh, I've wrote a play about the war. It's an SF play. I'm looking for um, a special forces combat veteran, former E8 African-American team sergeant <laughs> who acts. And within like, I'm not even kidding, like an hour, I got several responses back that said, you got to call Lenny Bruce. And so Lenny and I connected and uh, he read the script and turns out he was in first group. I was in seventh group. We had deployed to Afghanistan together in 04. We didn't know each other, sure. but he read the script and he was like, I'm moving to Tampa uh, from Atlanta next week. Let's get going. Like he was like, he was all in and um, he's been all in ever since then. Him and Brian both think it's just been the coolest thing. And that's how I found him. I think, uh, Brian, Brian stands out when he, when he plays uh, many roles, but certainly when he played Colonel Smith, that was, uh, mm, I'll yeah. forever hold that against him. That that's a, that's a tough role. And, and he does it excruciatingly well. 
Um, I, th- I thought he, he, I was like, boy, he must add some shitty leadership because he really captured that real, really well when he played that role. And I, I just have to ask just as, uh, you know, when uh, somebody that watches the play, when you end up confronting him and have kind of one of the climactic moments of the play that I, I don't want to give too many spoilers for, but when you really get into it with Colonel Smith in the play, how much of that was based on real life? And- oh, a lot. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, a lot. And a lot of it had to do, too, just with my uh, and it still does with my frustration with the careerism in the the senior ranks of the military, like, you know, senior 05, 06 and above and senior enlisted advisor. Like it it is rampant. It is it is rotten to the core, the careerism. And and Brian knew that and he really dug into that. You know, he really dug into that. Um, and, and I, I wanted him to bring that out. I wanted people to, to smell yeah, the careerism and the career aspirations on Smith. Um, and he did it like he did it. And like Monty and I watched it the other day and I was like, man, I just want to knock the shit out of him right yeah. now. Like, I just yeah. want to punch him right in the face, man. And he, yeah, he, he really brings it out. Did you, uh, I just have to ask, answer to your degree of satisfaction, but did you actually uh, raise your fist to an officer in that situation, kind of the way Danny does in the play? Did it ever actually provoke a physical uh, no, not, response? Not to that point. I was okay. confronted about the, believe it or not, the silly band on a deployment, and it, it got down to, um, you know, basically an ultimatum to take it off, and it got down to, you know, two individuals very close to each other um, physically and making it me making it real clear that there was only one way that was coming off. Um, and, but, but never to, to that degree of, you know, physicality. Um, I've, I've certainly experienced that with other leaders and, and, you know, it happened and, you know, I went back and forth on it in the writing, but I, I felt like um, with, with, with the way everything, with where Danny was, with everything coming off the rails and, you know, the only thing that he had left was that silly band and what that meant for him to take that off and what he would have to sacrifice. There was, he would have to, he would have to yeah. um, defend it physically. Yeah. There, there's uh, the other piece of that scene that I think is just worth underscoring is the, um, the punitive part of being in the army that yeah. in many, many times, no good deed goes unpunished. Um, I've gotten my knuckles wrapped down range. Uh, it seems like you did, or at least certainly Danny did in that case. Yeah. Um, and when it's happening, because you are literally, you've had an epiphany or you've had some sort of breakthrough that's led you to do things in a way that's having good results and good effects and then see the weight of the bureaucracy, whether it's SOCOM, whether it's uh, any other entity coming down um, through the command channels on you. I, I felt it in that scene that brought back a lot that triggered an awful lot of stuff for me. I hope it does for an audience that doesn't even have a military background. I hope they yeah. feel that because I don't think it's something that people can necessarily appreciate. They might look at Danny and go, yeah, he's doing things great. That guy's just an asshole. Good versus bad. Too easy. I got it all made up in mind. It's like, no, that's a real thing. And that's, I mean, you can end up, you know, like Jim Gant, you can end up, you know, with a lot of bad things happening to you 
Uh, you know, if you're trying to, you know, no good deed goes unpunished, you know, yeah. uh, yeah. there's, there's just a lot of downsides and you really are taking your life and your career in your hands in many respects with that. And I think, you know, for, for me, uh, I did have that happen to me a lot, um, whether it was with the village stability program or even with pineapple, you know, I mean, I had the FBI come to my house, um, and other, you know, uh, subtle and overt threats from the soft community, senior leadership. I've had SOCOM senior leadership tell me to turn it off, you know, and um, I think at the end of the day, man, like what I hope is when people watch that film and that play that they see the contrast between, you know, Danny and Smith and that, you know, that, that yin and yang that's happening there and that they recognize that what Danny is really standing on is honoring a promise. Like he made a promise. He says it. We, you, I promised those people I'd be there with them for the long haul. It's like this interplanetary battle. And if you look in Smith's face, he's like, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't compute. Like it doesn't make any sense in his, in his world of calculated moves. Right. And, 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 and I really hope that people will listen really carefully to the lines that are coming out there, because I think they speak to the leadership quandary that we have, not just in the military today, but really in any relevant arena where people don't feel psychologically safe to speak truth to power or to even pursue the vision that these leaders give them. Like they don't feel safe enough to go full on and pursue it. And if they do, they're usually reprimanded somehow because they got outside the lines or, or whatever. And it's a real problem. And I think that careerism in this highly modern mass technology society that we're in today is probably one of our greatest downfalls at a societal level. And, and I, I, I make no apologies for that point in this play. And I think that it really, like you said, I think when you want, you'll know it when you see it. Uh, and it's, I hope everybody will kind of evaluate it at their own level for where they stand on. So I had uh, Wes Morgan on the show a while ago, uh, the author. He's of amazing. Place. Yeah, amazing. That dude's guy. amazing. Amazing guy. Um, yeah. And, and uh, his story is obviously about Kunar and and uh, everything that happened there. And, and obviously a lot of yeah. the premise of his book is about CT versus coin. And I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked him. When you have, and it, because you're, it brings, it comes up in your play and you can't help but think of it if you know Wes Morgan's book and then you see your play. Because coin, because counterinsurgency is such a personality-based skill set, is it scalable? Is it something that you can put into a big bureaucracy, even you know, in a special operations world, which you know, SOCOM is still a, a big enough bureaucracy that you just you can't scale it. There's you either have those skills or you don't, and as a result, you can't expect everyone up and down the chain to understand, appreciate, and be able to implement coin principles to the degree that they need to be implemented. I agree with some of that and I disagree with some of that. So I, I think some of it has to do with the language that we use. So I'll just unpack it. I, I, I do agree that I think trying to make, you know, coin counterinsurgency as a, you know, as a, as a way to wage a campaign, uh, it didn't work in, in Afghanistan or Iraq any better than it worked in Vietnam. Right. And, and, and coin, um, as a as as a as a skill set or a method set for the conventional force, um, I don't think is really a good idea, 
Like as a general rule, I don't think that an 18 year old paratrooper, you know, from Brooklyn is well suited to work by, with, and through indigenous people. Like he is more suited to break things and kill people. Right. And I think that to try to make him something that even these SFA brigades, these security force assistance brigades, like, you know, I don't really buy into that. I think that coin as an approach is very flawed when the conventional force tries to apply it. And so Wes and I definitely agree there. However, I, I think that there's another level to this, and it's called FID, Foreign Internal Defense. And Foreign Internal Defense is a capacity-building whole-of-government program that our government has been doing for decades. And we've done it, honestly, pretty well. I mean, if you look at, like, for example, Colombia, you know, where the longest insurgency in history has been going on, you have had special forces guys down there 24-7, 365 for decades, and no one even knows it. And they work closely with the DEA, and they work closely with USAID. Um, we've done it in the Hualaga Valley of Peru against Shining Path. We've done it in Guatemala. Like, there's a real uh, capacity for FID because it's the antithesis of unconventional warfare, right? So you're either... You're, you're either helping a resistance overthrow a government or you're helping a government put down a resistance. Either way, you've got the proponents of it, Green Berets, at the heart. Here's the problem in my assessment. We have become so enamored with the JSOC aspects of counterterrorism that we think that is the, the, the all there is of special operations, right? We, it has subsumed and eclipsed foreign eternal defense as a capability. And so if you don't believe me, how many SF battalion commanders have commanded U.S. SOCOM since 1986? Zero, not one. There has never been an SF battalion commander who has commanded U.S. SOCOM, not once, right? And, and as a, you know, uh, and it may, again, I, I'm sure there's something that has sour grapes, but it's not really. I mean, counterterrorism is a very viable, direct action is a very viable, useful skill set. Sure. But I think if you look at what we're going to be doing for the future, whether it's asymmetric warfare against non-state actors or whether it's against Russia or China, irregular warfare by, with, and through surrogate forces is likely going to be a mainstay occupation for the U.S. military and our ability to do foreign internal defense or FID to create an antibody capacity in these hard places that can stand against that is critical. Otherwise, we're doing toe-to-toe direct action in everything we face. And, and, and the last thing I'll say is this, the greatest violator of this, this FID capability is special forces itself. We have abandoned our own by, with, and through mantra in favor of knee pads and Velcro. We want to be JSOC Jr. We have an identity crisis in our regiment, and particularly in the post-9-11 arena, we don't want to do by, with, and through. And there were SF commanders, some of them who I worked for, who are Smith, that advocated for that, right? When Smith says they're all bad, just different degrees. Like, that's what I'm talking about. And until we figure that out, we're putting the nation at risk. 
because there is no force right now advocating for this thing called FID. And frankly, most policymakers, most people at the agency, most generals have no clue what it is, and they lump it all in with coin, and it's not the same. And and that's where I have a a, a distinction with Wes. I don't know what he thinks about that, but that's how I feel about it. And going into these next conflicts, if we don't sort that out, SF's going to become irrelevant, um, and we're not going to have a buy with and through capability, and that's going to that's going to put the nation at risk. I'm not going to speak for Wes. My my gut feeling is that I don't think he would quibble with very much what you said, but uh, but I, I think there's an awful lot of truth to it. It does strike me that, um, especially to a politician and to a civilian, not usually the people themselves, in my experience anyway, but to politicians and civilians who don't have firsthand experience of the different tiers. In special operations, there is a sense that your tier level is your degree of awesomeness, as opposed to looking at, no, there's different roles. It's not degrees of awesomeness. Yeah. It's that there's different jobs that have to be done. And um, I, uh, the people that I know at each tier level seem to be very clear on that. But the people that don't have firsthand experience that usually seem to think, oh, okay, yeah, there's the AAA, AA, you know, and yeah. single A, and then you move into the majors. And it said, that's not what the tiers are. It, it's different tools. And, and you got to understand that. And the inability to understand that and to sexify tiers based on what tier level you're on is incredibly counterproductive. It is. It puts the nation at risk. And, you know, General Sokolik, I think he, he, I don't know if he wrote an article on this, but it was really good. Shortly after bin Laden died or got killed and uh, Sokolik w- went in to see his doctor and his doctor was ribbing him on uh, not getting bin Laden and the SEALs getting bin Laden. And, you know, he said it made him, I think he said it made him either angry or frustrated, but not because he was being ribbed about the SEALs getting him and him didn't. It was that his doctor didn't know that the SF guys weren't even looking for him. You know, and, 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 and the fact, and that's another reason I wrote the play is, I, you know, there is a sub theme there that I want people to understand what uh, SF is, what they do, what their charter is, not not what we think we ought to do, but like what our charter is by, with, and through and all that, and to kind of feel what it means to work with a local population and have an appreciation for that and what they're capable of when we do that. And uh, I think it's real important. And I think we've lost that as a nation. um, And it's really important that we get it back. But right now, our own identity crisis and special forces is uh, precluding us from doing that. I want to tell you about a really uncomfortable, um, troubling conversation I had uh, back in October when, um, you know, a lot of efforts to get people out of Afghanistan were running hot and heavy. And, and, um, you know, there was a lot of momentum behind it. And I kind of naively assumed that a lot of veterans uh, would be kind of unequivocally supporting that mission. Yeah. And I talked with a a guy, a good friend of mine, um, great guy. But he said, I don't give a shit. He's like, I care about Americans. I yep. do not give a fuck about Afghans. And he said, every Afghan I ever met had a bag over their head. And that was his experience. And I talked about this with somebody that um, that I had met, uh, you know, um, trying to help Afghans. And he said, yeah, he's like, I'm running into that too. And he's like, you know what I think it is? And this was his uh, experience. And I, I want to get your opinion on this. But he said, for me, he's like, what I'm noticing the rift is. Everybody that was there has not been in Afghanistan 
since 2013. He's like, I don't know what it is about 2013 or yeah. 2012, 2013. Maybe it's because of the surge or whatever. But he said, everybody who has not been there since then has a really negative opinion of the Afghans and, um, and seems to be down on this. He's like, the people that have been there since 2013 are the ones that have seen uh, huh. that seem to be a lot more um, open to it and, and, and understand the, uh, you know, all the upside of helping Afghans and, and also see the Afghans as a partner force more than kind of the uh, godless heathens or whatever that, uh, that pre 2013 veterans seem to be in his experience, seem to be seeing them. Now, obviously you're a pre 2013 veteran, I guess you could say in that, in that respect, but have you seen that split also, or is, is that, I, I to me, that kind of started to make sense. And I also thought, let me just say this. I also thought it was a bit of a credit to us, to the American military, that I think we had built up the Afghan government and we had partnered with them for long enough that their military had changed a bit. And there yeah. were, and there was more simpatico relationships that we have between them. I don't know. Um, but I wanted to throw that out and see if that you know, conflated with your experience as well, but that cleared up a bunch of things for me and maybe understand kind of some of the, 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 the split, the schizophrenic dynamic I was seeing and how people were treating the Afghan evacuation. Yeah. I think there's, that's a great point. I think there's definitely, so let's start with the obvious. I mean, there, there was a point where, you know, when I can't remember what exactly what year was it 2014 when, when we, when we, it was no longer OEF, right. It was, it was now, you know, uh, Afghans in the lead. And there was, there was a, there was a defined shift when that happened. And yeah, I mean, at that point, Afghan national security forces were in the lead and they, you know, and, and so there's one, I think the other thing is, if you think about it, kind of like what I said with my buddy Cliff, you know, when I first went over in 04, um, it was still fresh, you know, the, 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 the towers, there was still a hole in the ground yeah. and, you know, yeah. we were still, you know, we were still feeling the, the emotional pain of that strike. And, and, uh, and there was a lot of payback, you know, in play. Uh, and the national command authority basically gave us a hunting license to go do that. And that's what we did. And so I think, yeah, anybody that participated in that period of time. Now that's not to say that there weren't relationships built in order to get after bad guys. And, you know, the, depending on what the levels of those relationships were, some of them were really deep. Some of them were purely transactional. You know, I, I think that the special forces typically necessarily. Um, the, the other thing I think probably worth noting is that you had these highly professional forces, partner forces start to emerge like the Afghan commandos, the NMRG, the Afghan special forces, the Koskatehas. I mean, there were this like really, really professionalized fighting units that we fought with all the time. And they became more American than we were in many ways with ball caps and Copenhagen and you know, and, and so there were those levels of relationships. But I think at the end of the day, I'll, I'll say this. There's a guy that's going to be in my book called, uh, his name is James with the hat. You may have seen him in Pineapple. Um, really cool dude. I mean, SF guy through and through, deployed, I don't even know how many times, um, almost six years of deployments in Afghanistan. Um, and one of the things, you know, and he is a true old school, de oppresso libera kind of guy, free the oppressed kind of guy. And he said, you know, one of the things about getting a partner to kill for you is you have to fall in love with them. Mm. 
And he went on to say very few Green Berets did that. And even fewer conventional forces or JSOC guys did that. And so if you, if you, you know, that's where at least some of the community is coming from is they feel like this is family. Like this is, this is as deep, this is as bad as abandoning your brother or your sister or your father. And, and, And it runs that. And then you've got on the other side, people that, like you said, they have bags on their head. Why would I even, my friend's dead because of these people, you know, and I try not to judge that, but I do believe for me, it has caused a palpable split, an unfortunate split in the veteran community. And frankly, with people that I used to revere that could have been avoided, you know, done this differently. I think we should uh, give people a uh, uh, the genesis, the origin story of pineapple. Can you talk about how it formed, uh, where it came from, and um, for those that aren't aware, just how that, what that process was like, revving that, putting that infrastructure together, and revving that engine up. Yeah. Um, the, the first thing I always say when I tell this story is it was not what I wanted to do. And it's still not what I want to do. And I think that's probably true with most people who are shepherds would tell you they would much rather be doing something else right now. In fact, they put some large element of their life on hold or they, you know, they experienced loss as a result of it, whether it was in a job or finances, time, nothing to the degree of loss that our Afghan partners did, but still it's significant. And I am count myself in that camp. I, I, you know, I've been out of the army since, 2013, um, I, I, I had a very difficult transition, as I said, and the play that we've been talking about and all of the work that I do, I have a for-profit and a non-profit. The for-profit teaches leadership and human connection. The non-profit teaches storytelling to veterans. Uh, all of that was designed to help me resolve my issues with that war. I, I, I left the Army not happy about where things were going. I left the army not crazy about the levels of careerism and bureaucracy that were in place. And so for me, it you know, my last 10 years has been a journey away from the U.S. government and anything to do with it. Like I'm an entrepreneur. I don't work in the contracting world. I have no use for it. Um, but when all of this happened, it started in early summer. You know, most of my folks that I worked with, I got out on SIVs, on special immigrant visas years ago. But there was one young man in particular named Nizam, who was an Afghan commando. He was Afghan special forces. Um, I had spoken at his uh, graduation ceremony in 2010. I'd gone on numerous patrols with him. Like he was, he was like a son to me, but he wanted to stay in Afghanistan. He wanted to continue to fight. But uh, at some point, the Taliban got his number literally and started texting him. And he left the commandos and went into contracting under a pretty well-known general officer whose name I'll leave out for now and um, and basically went to the north and was working there, was friends with an ABC reporter named James Meek, who I'd worked with on various things as well. And I started getting texts from James and Nizam in early summer that things were falling apart in the provinces and, and Nizam's SIV was going nowhere and could I help And I kind of avoided it, to be honest with you, because I just it wasn't that I didn't want to help Nizam, but I was like, I'm not I'm just not going back into that world, you know, because I I didn't know how it would end with me. And and, but over time, when when finally when Kabul fell 
And I was talking to Nizam on signal and he said to me effectively, sir, look, all of my friends are gone. My unit is gone. He goes, I know I'm going to die and I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to die alone. And it just, that really hit me. It really hit me hard. And it, and it, and it made me realize that like this kid shouldn't die alone. He shouldn't die at all. I mean, he should have been out on an SIV. He's immensely qualified um, and nobody else was coming. So James and I decided right here in this building I'm in right now, my little rooftop office, I went to the whiteboard and I drew my first course of action sketch that I'd drawn in 10 years and called Mike Waltz, uh, Congressman Mike Waltz, and got him to help because we're old friends and uh, James and a couple of active duty Green Berets who had worked with Nizam. And we just started putting together, you know, a remote plan to help him move across the city using our Jamiat Islami network and, you know, just some of their connections. Um ways to get him through the immense crowd and then how in the world are we going to get him through the gate admitted and uh on an airplane and it took about i don't know 96 hours uh just not sleeping and working that eventually we got him within the gate and james meek called in to a diplomat uh who just happened to be an sf dude uh former and he said we got to take care of our own tell him to say pineapple right now because they're going to throw him out if you don't because he had snuck in and so we're all going, say pineapple. And he said it. And sure enough, we got a selfie of him on the other side of the wire. And um, and then, you know, I just hit my knees on the ground. I just like I couldn't believe it, you know, that that he was in. And I thought that was it. And then r- requests just started flooding in because friends had heard that he got in. And, you know, people were trying to do the same for their friends to just honor a promise. And I looked at my wife and, um, you know, my son was getting ready to go off to college. My last kid and was going to see my dad who just had a stroke. And I looked at Monty and I said, you know, you know, if we do this, like there's no coming back. And she goes, I know you do what you have to do. And she just turned around and walked inside. And, you know, at that moment, I, James typed in task force pineapple on our signal room and we just started inviting people in and it grew to, you know, 150 shepherds, I think at one point and uh, numbers vary on how many we were able to help get in. I don't think that really matters because there were so many we didn't get out, uh, but that became, you know, task force pineapple. And the only other thing I'll say, and I'll throw it over to you, Chris, for comments on your perspective of it, but you know, the thing that I think we did different, because, you know, at Dunkirk and Team America and North Star, I mean, these amazing groups, Sacred Promise. Uh, I think the thing that we did, maybe looking back on it, was I decided to tell the story of Nizam. You know, I'm a storyteller, so I just decided I'm going to go on the news. And this is where a lot of SF generals were telling me to be quiet and quiet professional. I was like, man, fuck you. Like, you know, kiss my ass our entire partner force has been abandoned and you're telling me to be like, no. So, you know, uh, I just started telling the story where who to whoever would listen. I didn't care. I just didn't care anymore, you know, because I felt like if we're going to, we can, this is a moral injury to end moral injuries. If we allow this partner force to be abandoned and I'm not the only one that feels that way. So let's raise money. Let's raise awareness. Let's raise hell. Let's burn it the fuck down, you know? And that's just how I felt. It's how I still feel. Um, and uh, that's what we did. And we just started really, you know, getting aggressive and anything that we could do to help them get out, raise, you know, change laws, um, 
And that's what we still, we still doing. We've divested the ground game of shepherds now over to operation recovery. Cause I just don't have, I don't have it in me to do that, but I am, you know, focused on raising money, telling the story, writing a book, whatever we can do. Um, because I think pineapple kind of has a connotation of recognition of veterans leading when nobody else does. And I, I want to continue that. What struck me about, um, Pineapple and all the efforts to get people out, and and I'm sure it struck you, was that you had an ad hoc group yeah. of highly motivated, not to sound like Liam Neeson, but highly trained people who developed a certain <laughs> set of skills over many years, yeah. who on the drop of a dime were suddenly trying to replicate the capabilities of a nation state and of a first world nation state. In literal and in days, if not weeks, it was insane to see and and insane to see that it was also working, but then also where the sticking points are, where it's difficult for an ad hoc group to replicate what a first world nation state can accomplish. And and that is uh, I'll I'll, I'm trying to find the, the right question to encapsulate all this, but I think where it is is. What are the second and third order effects that you see of this? Because I have my own theories of where this can go or if it goes anywhere. But what, do you think there's do you think there's legs on this? Do you think this there will be second and third order effects because of the infrastructure development that has happened and the framework that has been set up and the connections that have been made through these kind of efforts when the U.S. government was willfully turning a blind eye to this? What a great question, man. You could do a whole podcast on that question. You probably do a documentary on that question, which we should probably talk about. Uh, but uh, <laughs> let me just unpack it the best I can. Um, your, your, your characterization of the scope and scale of the problem, I think, is so profound. And I think for a lot of people, they didn't think about that. But I did. And the only reason I did was because, you know, I, I just... My experience in Afghanistan was I had, you know, I had tactical engagements. I had moments of uh, sheer terror. I had moments where, you know, um, it was tactical prowess and all that stuff in play. But a large chunk of my experience in Afghanistan was dealing with these complex, thorny issues at the operational strategic level of war. And I had a pretty healthy appreciation for, you know, how JSOC rolls, how, the interagency operates, how the agency operates, like, you know, and it, it wasn't lost on me as I was at this moment between Nizam and these 50 other signal messages that were coming in. And I'm like, okay, hold on a second here. Now, this is, this is different. Helping a buddy is one thing, you know, scaling up and taking on this level of NEO, because what we basically became then was a component in a NEO. We became the component that, frankly, JSOC and other entities, to include SF, typically fill, where you go outside the wire and you, you recover, you know, at-risk Americans, licensed uh, LPRs, permanent residents, you know, at-risk Afghans, 
And, and, and that's, you know, and that's what we were signing on to do as these private citizens. I mean, yeah, we had skills and experience and, but, but shit, man, like you're talking, you know, uh, most of these organizations, including pineapple, weren't even 501c3s. Like we didn't even have a, an entity status. And, and so we were signing on for a mammoth responsibility um, that because of, of, of a simple value proposition, we knew who they were, these at-risk individuals. We knew where they were, which the military did not. And they trusted us to help them move through these obstacles and present themselves responsibly to the folks that could pull them in. That was our role. And, and it was a value proposition. Like there were people on the other side of the wire that recognized it. There were some that didn't. But like that's the, that was the collective value prop, I think, of this whole thing. And it, it did. It worked to some degree. Now, what are the second and third order effects? I'll start with some of the more negative ones. I believe that the people who volunteered to help put themselves at immense risk by getting in sideways with the government in, in whatever capacity you want to label it, even if it's just to try to recover people that the government didn't give a shit about. Like by definition of doing that, you are opposing their point of view on things. And in this politically charged environment that we live in, who knows, right? Like there's all kinds of stuff that can come from that. But then there's also legal questions and so and financial questions like people were taking financial risks. They were leaving their jobs. So there was, you know, just right there, there was risk to these volunteers. Even deeper, though, I think that. The other negative aspect to this is that what we have done to an extremely vulnerable, particularly veteran population of combat veterans, the way we have shifted institutional responsibility to them, the way these general officers, and it, to me, it's just so egregious, SF generals, SF sergeants major, SOCOM commander, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs who they basically didn't say anything. Some of them turned a blind eye while their sergeants and captains worked as volunteers in Pineapple and other groups. But as leaders, that was their action, was to allow this to happen surreptitiously and think that was enough. And then at the same time, ask those people and me and others to take care of their guy, to call me on their private cell phone and say, hey, can you handle my guy? It was such a massive shift of responsibility from the institutional to the informal, to this veteran population. That to me, and what that has done is it's put these people on the world's longest 911 call. Scott, can I just drill down on that just to make sure people are clear? When you say that they call you and have you and ask you to take care of their guy, what exactly did that mean? Well, like, for example, I got a call from a special advisor to Kamala Harris in the West Wing that said, we have a very special Afghan. Can pineapple help him? And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, you have Delta sitting in a hangar. Like, go get him. What are you talking about? Like, you do know I'm a 53-year-old dude with a cell phone, right? You know, but this happened, and I'm not, I'm not even kidding. Like, it some of the people that outreached, it's insane, but it's, it's, 
it's most of the people we see in the news. We're reaching out to, and not just pineapple, a range of groups. But but that's on the high end. But then, you know, there were, again, there were these general officers and group commanders and others who just, like, didn't say anything, didn't do anything, allowed the volunteers to handle it, and then said, hey, can you take care of my guy? Can you get this guy out to these volunteer groups? You know, and to me, that was a shift of responsibility onto these volunteers that they never should have taken on. They, they just, we should not have put that on them. You know, because how do you hang up the phone? How do you come off? They're not equipped to deal with that. You know, an SF group is equipped to deal deal with that. An SF command is equipped to deal with that. And then the response is, yeah, but well, um, the the chain of command wouldn't allow us to do it. Oh, really? So you're going to put it on a combat veteran? Like you're going to you're going to shift that to him or her? How's that right? You know, and and then you just. I mean, it doesn't, and here's the other side of that. This is what else I'll say on that is I'm all about the special ops for life, the soft for life, soldier for life stuff, but I haven't had one active duty general except Millie, none from the soft community, reach out to me and say, hey, how do we work together with you guys to recover all of this critical information on networks and people and commandos that you guys are working right now. Like what, and I'm sorry for my language, but what the fuck is that? How is that possible? That the the entity that is most responsible for surrogate warfare, unconventional warfare, knows that there are groups like Pineapple and all of these others that are still in contact with coherent partner forces that we've spent 20 years training and there's no outreach. Meanwhile, the CIA evacuated their entire paramilitary force. That, to me, like, unbelievable that we're this deep in and there's been no private-public collaboration around this. Can I just interject one big yeah. thing that, that you that you bring up? And there's so many aspects to this that I know I'm going to forget major uh, bullet points that we should talk about, but this is one that I'm glad you brought up. To me, the discussion about the Afghanistan war in general frequently does not include a discussion of the valuable real estate that is Afghanistan. The fact that it is directly adjacent to every every single major geopolitical enemy the United States has, and the platforms that were built in that country that we just pulled the plug on created a huge blind spot now in our information gathering and our ability to analyze world events. And what that, and, and, and that's, I mean, I don't want to say all well and good, but let's leave that aside for one second and say that then when you do have private individuals, veterans, who, as you point out, are suddenly the ones busy trying to fill that gap, that the fact that no one is even curious, that no one is even asking for a public-private partnership because they understand that there is a huge value add that groups like Pineapple can bring to the fight to provide, to fill gaps that now the U.S. government has willfully turned a blind eye to. I mean, I could say, by the way, we don't have a great track record of what happens next when we turn a blind eye to Afghanistan, but let's leave that aside for right now. Yeah. The fact that people do, and I I, I will just, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll say this, I'm going to look at my phone right now. I have 2,261 messages right now, right now, coming out of that country that I haven't even had time to read. Obviously. Right. 
And and yet no one is interested and no one in an official paid capacity with a with a, uh, you know, a, uh, uh, you know, retirement plan with a 501c uh, with, with with a 401k, you know, with, uh, nobody that has the incentive structure built around them to care about this is caring about this. And no. instead, it's on volunteers who are losing you know, whose marriages are being strained, whose finances are being strained, who are doing this as an unpaid full-time job in addition to one or two other jobs, as you point out. And that is truly the insult to injury, I think. Yeah. And and one and one that, I mean, even if you're like, hey, enough veterans, stop sobbing for yourself. So, you know, stop having a pity party, fine. But let's look at the value that this could be to the US and to our safety and security and to many people in government who could stand to leverage this information and these connections in a really positive way. This is going to affect all of us. And the veterans know this. Like this is the part that's to me is un- unimaginable is the veterans know this. Like the veterans that are still in the game right now, you know, they understand fully what's in play. They understand everything you just said, you know, is is so poignant and so relevant. And and you know, None of these people are really complaining. They've cashed in their 401ks. They've quit their jobs that, you know, we're seeing suicide ideation go up. And so for me, I don't mind being that guy that looks at a peer who used to be someone was a mentor to me and saying, hey, man, like you're breaking, you're breaking the guys and girls who like grew up with you, who fought alongside you. And who believed in you, you're breaking them. And they're asking where you are right now. I mean, let me ask you this, man. Have you seen any retired generals, like any, take a public stand on this? Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge, no. How's that possible? I mean, why wouldn't they at least take a public stand on the mental health issues affecting our veteran population? Or... Just hey, you know what? Let's let's let let me broker a private public forum between active duty entities and these different groups to give a good handoff of information. Like, you know, why is that? Like, is that not odd? You know, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that many of these folks own defense service, you know, contract companies, right? But 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 the reality is, man, like there are people holding the bag right now who are really suffering and don't have the game financially, resource wise to to stay in this for the long haul. But go back to my friend George, who's getting Montagnards out. They're not going to stop. They're going to keep doing this because they they we're all trained to stand our post until properly relieved. Yeah, yeah. We're all trained that way. And, and so all of these veterans know, they understand the geopolitical ramifications. They understand that they're sitting on a treasure trove of potential resources and assets and information. They understand the negative. At We have guys that have gone to the special forces qualification course at Bragg in country right now who could be co-opted. Now you think about that, right? Like uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. And, and so we've we've got guys that know this girls that know this and nobody is coming to them saying okay how do we move this responsibly back into the public domain so when you ask me like what's the potential i mean is there potential in the future for a private public dunkirk kind of thing yeah 
I think there is if the leadership were open and willing to actually leverage that. But right now, I'm more concerned that all of the things I've just rattled off are not being addressed in any capacity. And we're going to have something go horribly wrong, either domestically with our veterans or abroad when my son goes into Afghanistan after the next terror attack. I don't know, but I, I just I see the next 9-11 testimony writing itself right now. I'm glad you brought that up because I was about to ask. Um, yeah. Do you want to publicly state when you think we will have to address Afghanistan? I don't want to say go back to Afghanistan because I don't even know what that would look like right now. But my 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 personal take and I was there as as recently as October 2020. Um, and when I was kind of shouting this from whatever small rooftops I, I could stand on to say this is ludicrous, the, the Doha peace talks were a joke. Um, yeah, I, I was against everything. I was against the reduction in violence. I was against everything that was going on because it was just it was uh, peace, peace when there is no peace. It, it was yeah. it was absolute um, desperate attempts to save face for and capriciously and arbitrarily withdraw, not based on anything happening on the ground. And I said at the time, my call was within three years, we will be back here if we leave. Now I have to revise that because with the Chinese currently occupying Bagram uh, and and taking over so much of the country and kind of being the power behind the throne uh, and the puppet master in certain ways in that country, not always, but in certain ways, um, and certainly Pakistan having its role, I, I don't know that we drop the 82nd in there. I don't know that that's a feasible Coa right. for us anymore. So I don't know what our involvement would be, but it's not hard to imagine that we will pay some significant price for having left Afghanistan that will cause us to have to revisit it in some way, shape, or form. And uh I don't know. Do you when do you how quickly, what's the flash to bang on that in your opinion? Well, and again, another great question that is depth and layered. I think there's a couple of layers that I would unpack. The first thing that I would say is I think um, when I when I think about the way we left the country, everybody kept talking about this CT force. And I don't disagree with that. I think a CT, a residual CT force would have been a game changer. However, nobody talks about a residual FID force. No one ever mentions the fact that there were no special forces teams on the ground when we departed Afghanistan. Think about that. We went in with the horse soldiers, you know, right around a hundred green berets in the very beginning. And we built a whole campaign around that. And then we did surgical strike in support of that. Right. But yet on the way out the door, we had no Green Berets on the ground at all. There was no foreign internal defense. There was no talk of that. It was just coins of failure. But nobody was talking. And this is my point. Like we could have, we could have, I believe, affected a, a, a FID campaign in that country that contained, that included a CT force and uh, a residual FID force that would have worked by, with, and through perhaps the commandos, the Afghan National Army Special Ops. Um, you know, a few other special units, and then maybe like a brigade of infantry, you know, that could be, a, you know, a hammer. I, I, and, and if you'd have maintained operational fires and those kinds of things with platforms, I think, you know, we would have had not only, you know, again, like you said, man, this is one of the most geopolitically relevant countries in the world. And so maintaining a presence for that 
you know, versus this whole, we're not going to lose another American. I mean, I don't want to trivialize the loss of any Americans, but the loss of Americans was pretty darn low compared to what we were gaining with geopolitical presence and capacity building in this nation. So I'll leave that there. Now that we're out, I think there's a couple of things we should consider is one is there's there's one scenario where um, I think probably when we get back into you know the, the spring, summer, you're going to see uh, a resistance force emerge. Um, I don't think the Taliban have any game for governing at all. And I can't imagine that the Uzbeks and Tajiks and Hazaras are going to stand for this much longer. Um, I think that people inside Kabul and other urban areas got a pretty decent taste of democracy over 20 years. And I, I suspect you're going to see, you know, a resistance movement that is, you know, not ISIS-K. It's like a true resistance. Now, whether or not that's going to be coming out of the Panjshir Valley, I, I have no idea. So that's one angle is, you know, do we get into another administration who recognizes Saleh as the legitimate vice president of that country, which he should have been, should have been recognized as the president, and that, you know, they are a true out-of-power government, and we go back to supporting a resistance. That's one, you know, thing I think could happen. Um, and I think you'll see the resistance, and frankly, the people that we're helping with Pineapple and other groups, I think some of them are going to have to make some hard decisions soon. We're not probably going to get all these people out on C-17s and commercial airplanes. Um, so, hey there. Um, and uh, the other possibility is a catastrophic terror attack in the West or at home where we get a sudden case of amnesia. We go back into that trance-like state of retribution. The country music songs come out. The Budweiser commercials start. We load our kids up. We put them on C-17s and we go into Afghanistan to, what is it, bring justice to the evildoers or whatever. And this time we're facing ex-commandos, ex-KKA, ex-Afghan special forces with M4s, optics and nods, body armor instead of Northern Alliance, you know. And I don't mean to be like doom and gloom, but like those are two very, very real scenarios I, I see happening within, you know, the resistance. I think you're going to see this year. I think you could see some type of U.S. support to it overtly, maybe by the next administration. And then I think a terror attack you know, ISIS or IQ could get their shit together within the next year or two. And I think they'll try to. I think they'll try to draw us back in. I, and I just to add to the doom and gloom, so you don't take the cake with it and you can everybody can direct their hate mail and to me instead is uh, you talk about proxy warfare uh, with the Chinese presence there. How easy would it be for them to co-opt any number of groups that are in Afghanistan and use them as with plausible deniability to direct them against us? Uh, you know, I. I, I just think sure. there's there's not a lot of good scenarios that come out of uh, out of us not being there. Um, when people asked me to describe the experience of trying to help people out in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. the best parallel I could come up with, I don't know if you ever saw this. It was a Twilight Zone episode that I must have seen in the 80s. And what it was, was a, it, was, it was supposed to be in New York City. And there was a guy who lived in this cluttered like hoarder style apartment. And he would run around all day grabbing like the top of a Coke bottle or, you know, like a flower from here, all these very specific things. And his neighbors were like, this guy's crazy. And finally they think he's on drugs and the police intervene. And he says, no, no, you don't understand. If I don't get this Coke bottle and put it right here at this time, uh, a volcano is going to erupt somewhere in the world. And, and the cops like, okay, this guy's clearly out of his mind and they lock him up. And at the end of the episode, of course, because he can't get to these things, suddenly 
things do start blowing up all over the world. That's how it felt trying to get Afghans out is that no sleep, running full pace, doing things that everyone around me thought I was out of my fucking mind um, and couldn't understand what was going on. Nobody could appreciate it. And I was like, no, no, you don't understand. I can't talk to you right now because if I don't answer this text, I can't get this person out of the frying pan and maybe there'll be a fire waiting for them, but then I'll have to get them out of that. But everything is the urgency and the immediacy of that makes you almost insane when it's goes on in a sustained time period for weeks. Yeah. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. But what I want to ask is for you, how did your wife feel when you were pedaling fast? Because I know as hard as I was working, you, you, a lot of people like you were working equally, if not harder, doing a bunch of things. Was this your last Afghanistan deployment? Were you just... Mm blinders on and you it's a complete gear shift and even though you're physically here your head is somewhere else how was that for you uh how was the support system around you how did you cope with all that yeah i mean i think for my from for my family it was you know it was really did feel like my last afghan deployment in many ways which is i don't want to take away from obviously those who were there i mean because they 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 bore the bulk of the risk and you know, there's there's people in the community who deployed a heck of a lot more than me, um, but it did feel that way. It felt like it's what it felt like. Um, and, you know, my wife was really supportive from the very beginning. We've been married 26 years and she knows how much I love Afghanistan. She knows how much I love so many of those people. We brought families over here together like Monty and I do pretty much everything together. My boys, I have three sons and they all understood too what this was doing to me. And, and I think the other thing was, I felt like they were watching me. You know, I felt as if in this moment, my children are watching me right now and and I have to demonstrate and model for them what we do in hard times when our friends are in trouble and we don't leave them. And, And I have to show up for my boys and model that. And that's all I could think of. And, and, you know, I don't think I worked any harder than you or anybody else. Everybody was just going as hard as they could. And um, it started to take a real toll on me physically. Monty confronted me on it after about, a, you know, it was around mid-September and she really intervened hard. She got my friends actually to inter- do an intervention uh, because I couldn't let go of anything, you know, and I was going down. I could feel myself going down, but I couldn't live with not doing those things. And what it ultimately ended up doing was I had to step back and realize that if I'm going to play a role for the long game here, I have to figure out what I'm able to do and what I'm not able to do. I'm 53 years old. I'm not a task force commander. I don't want to be a task force commander. Um, there are people who are much better at that than me who feel led to do that. Like I, I can tell the story. I can raise money for people who, um, who do that. And I have, I've raised a lot of money. I can, I can tell the story in the written word. I can do it from the stage. I can do it from the news. I can, you know, I can rage against the machine and, and have no recourse really for me. I don't give a shit. I'm an entrepreneur. I don't care what they think of me. Um, and all those, I had to get clear on that and I had to get clear on what I couldn't do. And once I did that and I responsibly divested the ground game uh, with our shepherds over to Operation Recovery, and they were positioned there to do that for the long haul, and and we had an arrangement for me to you know work to help them raise money or whatever. 
then I, I, I felt like I could breathe again and I could do this for a long time um, and play a relevant role for a long time. But it was, there was a period there where, yeah, it could have gone either way. And I know, and I'm not naive to, you know, there are a lot of people right now who are in similar situations and are going to have to make similar decisions for their life if they haven't already, because nobody should go down as a result of this. I'm sorry, but I don't buy into that. I don't believe that any of us should be condemned to suffering because our institutional leaders failed. You know, there's a way to do this and, and, and still have our lives, but I don't believe that anybody should indefinitely suffer as a result of this. I don't think it's right. I think we can still work it, but I don't believe that any more than somebody should sit around in mental anguish after having gone to combat. It's not, it's not right. So I don't know the answer to that, but I do think we're going to have to help. And this, again, this is like, where are the generals? Where are the sergeants major? Where are, you know, where are the politicians recognizing these shepherds that did all this great work? Um, you know, calling out what they did and then helping them transition to some level of resilience to process that residue. And it's I, I'm not going to shut up until that's done. I'm not I'm just not. And I don't think a lot of us will, because we have to help that to occur. I think there's one piece I just want to bring up. Uh, I, I don't want to necessarily take our conversation backwards, but. I just think it's important to say for me, what was one of the most jarring and difficult things to deal with was that as a veteran, but, you know, kind of taking this role and trying to help people out on the ground, you're kind of falling back into that U.S. government mindset and you're an American, you're a recent veteran, you have, you know, as we said, a certain set of skills but now you have no capabilities. You have no assets. You yeah. have very limited ways of executing this. And for, I think for Americans, I don't want to speak for anybody but myself, but I would imagine that many people may have felt the way I did, which is that it is the height of frustration to go, this used to be just a phone call. This used to be just a button. This used to just be a screen and I could have answers and I could do things. And now you're just a guy who knows what should happen, knows what right looks like, but doesn't have that capability because you're not part of a nation state entity executing this. You are an ad hoc group. And I think that to, to that impotence, for lack of a better word, is incredibly difficult for a lot of folks. And, and I, I know for, for me, I, I, I don't have a lot of good answers for how you overcome that. And I think it's, it's definitely one of those things that you know, uh, my, my big goal was to be able to look myself in the mirror and say, did I do everything I could? And when I was able to hand off my yeah. flocks to um, the, the amount of flocks I was, I was handling ended up going to three different people to be able to split that, that workload up. And I was glad I was able to transition and hand off, but um, it, it's, you know, you just, it, it's, it's painful to see, and, and to see, to see the, the, the lack of trying to think of the right word for this, but the, the loss of faith yeah. from people that used to have faith in you No, and you, you're going and, and for the individual, for the shepherd going, I'm, I'm doing everything I can. I just don't have the levers that I used to have. And, um, and no private entity could, 
uh, is incredibly difficult. And I think um, it, it does. It can't help but make you angry about the official government response. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Sorry. Just a pod, not to soapbox on that too much. And I'll leave that to you if there's anything you want to add. Other than, no, I think you said it well. I think other than just, I think we all have to maybe realize that the role that we can play, you know, for example, is that, you know, there are networks out there that do have a lot of game. And I think the key right now is to treat this as a humanitarian crisis and to focus on, you know, providing, helping to provide those basic necessities that keep people alive and give them options. And then, you know, at some point, our Afghan partners are going to have to rely on their own agency to survive and thrive. They're going to have to, whether that's joining up with the resistance or whether that's you know, getting in a corridor to go over to another country and 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 try to gut it out in a refugee camp, or you know, or just uh, resist however they resist locally. I um, I do think there that 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 time is coming. You know, I do think that that reckoning is coming, and I think most people in Afghanistan know that. Right now, I think they are facing an inordinate amount of challenge with the winter with you know being dislocated from their homes with losing their jobs with losing their identity with facing a very oppressive you know Taliban so all of those things if left to their own devices they probably wouldn't survive the winter but i don't think that's necessarily true when we get into june and july you know i think there is the opportunity for agency and and overcoming and resistance and and that's not to say we don't still try to get out the most at risk but for us to sit here and think that somehow we're going to get out 150,000 people over the next year. I mean, let's, yeah, let's try, but let's also look, you know, at the unconventional guy in me looks at this and goes, there's more to this. Like there's, it's more about like, let's treat this as a humanitarian corridor. Let's help them survive, get options, find out where we can best play our positions to do that as a society. And let's find a way for the private public sector to come together on this responsibly and position ourselves to make the best of this because there's still a lot to be recouped and recaptured and 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 mobilized. But every day that we don't do that, we are losing valuable um, assets and relationships and knowledge and uh, and and the, the dismissal of the soft for life and the veterans who are doing this and other volunteers by the formal government and the institutional leaders is again egregious and you know and and the the the, the pinnacle of hubris um so we're, you know we're gonna, that's just sorry yeah no i want to i want to make sure we give a plug out to what people can do now yeah. obviously we'll have this in the show notes but can you just tell people what they some place that they can direct their efforts their energy sure. their money yeah and i'll probably have to bolt here in a minute yeah um, no worries um i would say if people wanted to help out, there's a couple of ways that I believe they could help. One um, is if if you want to help domestically, you know, we're doing our, our nonprofit, The Hero's Journey. Uh, that's H-E-R-O-E-S, plural, The Hero's Journey. You know, we focus on helping warriors and family members find their voice and tell their story as they transition home from service. And we've opened the aperture now to help Afghans do that. For example, Nizam, passenger number one, is now a, a story coach here at the hero's journey. And and we're going to do joint workshops with Afghan commandos and U S special forces and other veterans and gold stars. And, you know, um, we're going to 
you know, work with you guys, Chris, to, to use storytelling as a way to heal and inform. So if you want to like get involved with that and help us, boy, that would be wonderful. And the heroes journey.org. Uh, if you want to get more like directly involved in the uh, safe passage of Afghans, um, there are a range of organizations out there. I'm a little partial to operationrecovery.org because so many of the flocks that Chris and I worked with are there. Um, not all of them, but but a lot of them. And I think they are going to do this for the long game. And I believe that it's going to be incumbent on us to give them the airspeed to do that. So those are two that I really like. Um, there are a bunch of them out there, but those two are close to my heart. Let's wrap this up with just one uh, kind of leaving us on a more optimistic note, but also holistic note for the uh, the complex enigma, the mystery wrapped in riddle that is Scott Mann. Let's leave this on a uh, uh, on an upswing. What is what's on the horizon for you? Uh, talk about what you got going on. Um, obviously, the hero's journey, but more of what the projects are that are coming out of that and what your next lines of effort are going to be. Yeah. So thanks. Uh, I'm an eternal optimist, man. I believe that as long as storytelling exists and we have breath in our body, you know, we're here and they were able to do greater good in the world. So some projects that I'm real excited about, uh, the, the book operation pineapple express, uh, is going to be coming out, uh, this summer on the anniversary of the fall. Um, I think it's going to really show what, what it means to, you know, what is a promise and what does it mean to honor it? And it's going to highlight, you know, shepherds like Chris and, and and the Afghan partners that they worked with. And I think really tell the story for the first time, you're going to see the Afghans as the hero in a war story. And I'm pretty excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, I think you'll be able to pre-order that in, in, in the spring and, you know, a good chunk of our proceeds are going to go to help more Afghans come out. Um, I think that thing could be optioned into a movie at some point, to be quite honest with you, uh, and and really tell the story filmically. Um, and then uh, last out, you know, our 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 play about the war, we kind of did what Hamilton did with their play, and uh, we turned it into a film with the same cast. And uh, we're working really hard to have it um, come out on Amazon Prime soon. Um, and we're going to be showing it in various locations, and and we'll be in coordination also with Chris about you know how we can work. Uh, with vet rep and all of that to 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 put it to use. Gary Sinise has shown some interest in it, uh, and then I'm going to start uh, work on a one person show again really soon, man. I, I uh, I'll say it here. I think it's the first time I've ever said it. I miss it bad, and it's 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 my therapy and it's how I heal. But I really want to do a tribute to our Vietnam veterans for all the support they gave to us uh, post 9/11. And I really am committed to jumping into the things they carried by Tim O'Brien as a one-person show and uh, and hopefully taking it on tour this summer. And maybe even coming to the Savage Wonder Festival to do it. I'd be honored. Yeah, it would be a blast. I can't wait. Scott, you've been incredibly generous with your time, man. And I, I can't thank you enough. There was so much ground to cover, and I feel like we easily could have done, done another two or three hours yeah. and I just won't do that to you, but um, for next time and for sure. uh, by all me. means, we'll be in touch, but I, I can't wait to have you back on. Uh, I appreciate it, brother. This was Thank great. you, Chris. I'm, I'm very, very grateful to what you did uh, on the pineapple side. A lot of people don't know that you are tr- as a shepherd and, but also what you're doing with, 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 with theater for our veterans. Like I'm whatever you need, you can count on, 
hero's journey in me. I am such a fan. And I think it's our way forward. I think art and storytelling are how we find our way out of the darkness and, and actually find goodness and hope in all of this. And I fully believe we can, um, but it's, we got it. We got to lean into that and, and follow your lead on it, man. So thank you. That was Scott Mann's profile in havoc. Boy, I can't wait to get him back on the show and talk more. Um, anyway, you guys see why that was not exclusively a Savage Wonder episode. <laughs> and uh, yeah, really enjoyed that. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope it was thought provoking. And um, yeah, let me know what you think. Obviously, check out the show notes for all of Scott's links. See all the lines of effort that he's got going on. Um, and uh, by all means, shoot us something on Instagram. Um, or in the comments on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on, let us know uh, what you think. I want to take a moment uh, again to thank our episode sponsor, Second Mission Foundation, as well as our other sponsor, the Veterans Repertory Theater. The Veterans Repertory Theater exists to produce veteran playwrights and to celebrate veterans in the arts. It is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events, which full disclosure is my nonprofit. Uh, Veterans Repertory Theater produces several things, not the least of which is the Savage Wonder podcast, which you've heard me reference several times uh, today, and the Savage Wonder literary blog as well. Veterans Repertory Theater also produces the Right Loud events on Instagram Live, which happen roughly once a month, or in this case, twice a month, because some asshole decided to invade Ukraine and we decided to hold a Right Loud about war breaking out in Europe for the first time in a very long time. So uh, always feel free to go to vetrep.org and check those out. Again, the website is vetrep, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. And when you go there, you'll see the Now Playing tab. Go to it. Look at all the different things we have going on. Um, You heard me talk with Scott about one particular event that we have going on uh, coming up in the dangerously near future. I won't reveal too much more about it than simply say it will be the Savage Wonder Festival and it will be held on May 29th, the Sunday before Memorial Day, literally the day before Memorial Day, and it'll be held at the Sugarloaf Performing Arts Center in beautiful upstate Chester, New York. Um, Scott will be there. Many other people uh, that I've interviewed, uh, mostly on Savage Wonder. I don't think too many that have been on Provost and Havoc. Um, but if you check out the Savage Wonder podcast, you'll see many people that I've interviewed there that will be there. We will have everything from dance to metal, from poetry to theater, from art, visual art in many different media to, um, I don't know, what's the other thing I can juxtapose? Country music. I don't know. We've got everything. We've got so many different bands and and artists. And one thing I always uh, say to people in explaining this, this is not a veteran talent show. This is not about, uh, you know, somebody happens to doodle in their spare time. These are all veterans that are actively, um, you know, pursuing careers in the arts or, or and, and, you know, the quality is going to be very high. I'm incredibly excited about it. And um, it's going to be a really good time. It's also going to be uh, free or virtually free to enter. It's pay what you can. I think the most you have or the, the smallest amount you can pay is just what covers our credit card costs or our uh, ticket processing costs. So I think it's $5 minimum, but a very, very cool event. I I can't wait for you guys to come check it out. Uh, I'll be honest with you. 
I um, had not planned on releasing this episode for a while. And after the fact, I realized because of the Ukraine and everything, I was like, we really probably should release this now and while this is topical. Um, but as a result, you know, since I talked about the festival with Scott on the air, I didn't think I was going to have to talk about it and announce it uh, this soon. And this is not an announcement. Consider this a, a soft announcement about the festival. Um, but giving you a heads up that that is coming. So um, keep eyes on vetrep.org. Keep eyes on our now playing tab. And in the dangerously near future, there will be a festival website up and running at savagewonder.com. So savagewonder.com, uh, the website should be up, I don't know, in the next week or two. Um, so keep eyes out for that. But in the meantime, you can always go to vetrep.org and see the latest and greatest of what we have going on there. So very cool stuff. Giving you guys a little sneak preview. If you've had the intestinal fortitude to stick around this long in the podcast, then I uh, figured it's worth it to spill the beans a little bit about the festival we have coming up. Um, so anyway, a couple more things that I could say about the festival. I'm just right now editorially deciding not to, because I think that should wait for the official announcement, but it's going to be very, very cool stuff. So something to look forward to for all you guys. And I thank the Veterans Repertory Theater for co-sponsoring this episode. Okay. Uh, there'll be an article accompanying this episode uh, in Havoc Journal this week. As I'm saying that, I'm trying to think when I'm going to squeeze at the time to write something, but I will. Um, I'll, I'll get something uh, ginned up uh, just to recap this episode a little bit. And uh, that'll be out on Havoc Journal. On uh, So while you're listening to this, you can go read my summation. You'll also read any alibis if there's anything I misstated, misspoke, misremembered, anything that needed more context, anything that makes me wake up at 2 in the morning in cold sweats. I will uh, write that up as well in that article. Um, again, if you're on iTunes, we please and thank you for any five-star reviews you can leave. That's always a big help and much appreciated. And as always, thanks to our producer, Michael Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Scott Mann. And we'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.